Uh, we started a series last week, which we've entitled Unlikely Church, and it's a study through the book of First Corinthians. It's one of two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the early church in the city of Corinth, thus the Corinthians. And First and Second Corinthians, the two letters, they're, they're quite different. Uh, the second letter is, is more of a comforting book. It's, it's a book that's really quite encouraging, whereas Paul's first letter, and there's probably more letters, um, but First Corinthians is really, it's, it's Paul's attempt uh, as a pastor, as a man who's deeply connected and, and, and who has a heart that's obviously full of love for these, these fellow believers in the city of Corinth. It's a letter from a pastor to a church that has major problems, uh, inside and out, internally, uh, they've just got issues upon issues upon issues. Um, they're struggling with things to do with uh, morality, with simply getting along, with marriages falling apart, uh, church services that are utterly chaotic, people being marginalized, um, being made to feel left out. And uh, they, they've just got issues. And on top of that, the city itself is such that it's really shocking that the church in Corinth ever survived the first century. Um, and as we looked at yesterday, it's really simply uh, a testament to God's faithfulness that this little fledgling, fledgling church, this community of Jesus followers actually made it. Um, and they didn't simply survive the first century, but, th but they thrived and uh, the grace of God was uh, evident in that little church, those followers of Jesus. So we started last week, and this week, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We have some in the aisle here as well. If you wanna grab one, those are there for you. We're gonna get right to it. And the way we're gonna do this is we're just gonna go bit by bit, not necessarily letter by letter, but we're gonna take chunks at a time, and we're gonna see if we can't capture uh, themes and principles and really the heart behind what Paul is saying here. Now, I wanna point out part two, which we've entitled Agreement, the Centrality of Unit, Unity, that it's significant to note that after Paul's introduction, that was last week, the first uh, what, nine verses of his letter, after Paul's introduction, he then launches into, okay, let's get down to business. Let, let's begin to address what's going on here. So we need to know what Paul addresses first. There's a long list of things that Paul uh, could begin to deal with, but this is where he goes to first. With that said, let's go ahead and, and read. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers, brothers and sisters, is the way the Greek actually reads, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, 
What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Oh, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Next slide. Verse 14. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul, speaking of himself? Verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except uh, Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. <laughs> Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Can we go back one slide, please? I appeal to you, brothers, for the sake of Jesus and his family, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Interesting. The very first thing that Paul decides, okay, before, before we address any of the specifics, before we get into any of the, the details in terms of the, some of the things that are going on, some of the things that you wrote to me about, you know, they, the Corinthians actually wrote Paul a letter. He alludes to, actually mentions it explicitly when he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, now concerning the things that you wrote to me about. So the Corinthians themselves had questions about the, the, the controversies and the struggles, all of the different things that were going on within their community. It takes Paul six chapters of his letter before he even finally gets around to saying anything about their questions and these issues that they have. Instead, he says, I've heard, it's interesting, they, they, don't, they don't bring up in their letter, apparently, the fact that there's like major quarreling going on. People are fighting in the church. There's divisions, uh, factions breaking out among the family of God. But Paul's heard from Chloe's people. I imagine Chloe must be one of the, um, I don't know, maybe like a small group leader of some sort, first century small group leader. Um, it's been reported by Chloe and some of her people that what's really going on, the real problem in the church is that people are just fighting. People aren't getting along. There's not unity. The real problem, people just aren't loving each other. People are not loving each other. So, some are saying, I follow Paul, others I follow Apollos. Apollos is also an apostle, an early church leader. We can read about him in Acts 18 and 19. Some are saying, oh, I, look, forget those guys. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go apostolic. I'm, I'm taking it straight to Peter. That is Cephas. And then others are like, no, nah, forget, forget all y'all. I'm with, I'm with Jesus. And isn't it interesting that Paul says, like, like, no, no, no. The divisions, this idea that some are picking, that some, you know, their favorite teacher is 
Paul, myself, some, their favorite teacher is Apollos, Cephas, Christ. Hmm. Slightly complicates things. You wouldn't think that he would include Christ in the list of your favorite teachers. His point being that you don't get to pick your favorite guy. Christ can't be divided up that way. You know anyone that, uh, you know, I think it was Mahatma Gandhi. In fact, I read his spiritual autobiography about a year ago, which he entitled, My Experiments in Truth. And it was in that autobiography that Gandhi said, um, I, I like Christ, not a big fan of your Christians. They're not much like your Christ. And how many times have you heard that? I'm down with Jesus, maybe. Mm, Not so much his followers. Certainly not the pastors. And Paul's response would be, "Mm -mm, it doesn't work like that. You don't get to pick one and reject the other. What God is doing in his church, what Jesus came to establish, his plan for spreading his transformative, sacrificial love across the planet requires that we get along, that there be unity of mind and judgment, that we be in agreement. So guys, we're gonna talk about agreement this morning. Not glamorous, not deep, not necessarily super exciting, but this is apparently what Paul believes is the starting point. And so we're gonna look at it today. I wanna break this sermon up into four questions. If we can go two slides forward. What does it mean to be in agreement? Quite simply. What are we to agree upon as followers of Jesus, if you are one? Number three, why is it so important, agreement? And number four, perhaps most importantly, how do we actually pull it off? How do we do unity in a community in the body of Christ? So what is agreement? Let's start there. Jesus said, in the, according to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, this was on the eve of his crucifixion, what most of our Bibles entitle the high priestly prayer. He's praying for his disciples. And he prays that his disciples, which would include us, might be one. Might be one. And the word he uses... I don't normally go to the Greek, but it's significant in this case. The Greek word he uses, it's heis, or the Hebrew equivalent would be echad. It's the same word that the scriptures use to describe or define the oneness of God himself. So when Jesus is praying that his followers, that his disciples, that we might be one, what he's really praying is that we might be united like God himself. So theologically, what does agreement look like? What does it mean to be in agreement? As a community, it means to be like God. In essence, it means to be like God. Trinity, not uniformity, 
but diversity in unity. If you study the scriptures carefully, it's, it almost leaps off the pages. It's, it's undeniable. It's arguably obvious that there's a three-in-oneness about the essence of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one in substance or essence. It's diversity and unity. It's true, loving community. And to be in agreement, to be united, is to be like God, theologically speaking. Practically, what does it mean? Practically, it looks like a vastly diverse group of people. You reckon we qualify? Depends how you define diverse. It looks like a vastly diverse group of people living out their lives together such that their differences pale in comparison to one greater unifying common reality. In fact, it's a reality that's so great that their differences aren't simply diminished in comparison, but rather made to accentuate the surpassingly greater unifying commonality. Agreement in a community like this is a whole group of impossibly different, diverse people. Marriage is a great example, actually. Agreement looks like two impossibly different individuals coming together because of a greater commonality, a unifying, significant, unifying reality that causes all differences to pale in comparison to something that's vastly greater, more beautiful, meaningful, significant, powerful of God. And in fact, the differences aren't merely diminished or marginalized or pushed aside in the name of tolerance or compromise. That common unifying Reality is so great and profound that our differences actually, actually serve to accentuate just how beautiful and powerful this common reality is. Does that make sense? Easy or hard to pull off? Totally easy, right? Even when our differences are actually quite superficial. It's flipping hard. I mean, look at us. We're just, just based on color skin alone. We're a, a fairly, um, what's the word? White, that's the word, thank you. <laughs> white crowd, we're, all not, we're not all white, and, and I actually thank God for that. Um, it's something that I pray for quite regularly. Um, I think a diverse community, and not just color of skin by any means, but an ethnically, um, generationally, a, a diverse community, I believe is a snapshot of God's family 
on earth as it already exists in heaven. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a snapshot of the very heart of God. And it's a miracle to actually pull it off. So this begs the question, what exactly are we to agree upon? I want to take you to John 17. I just referenced it a minute ago, but let me, let me read out of the Gospel of John to you quickly. John chapter 17 Jesus prays, starting in verse 10, he says, or verse 11, rather, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. In verse 20, he goes on to say, I did not ask for these only speaking of his disciples there with him, not only for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What are we to agree upon? Paul says in, um, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he's, he's appealing to the Corinthians. He's appealing to us, essentially, saying, won't you be one in mind and in judgment? Mind, of course, referring to what we actually believe, the core doctrine, convictions, truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. Judgment referring to our application of what we believe. What what are we to make of what's true about Jesus in terms of how we actually apply it and live out our lives? So he's talking about being united in what we think and how we act. What specifically is it about what we believe and how we act that Paul is wanting to emphasize? Well, We're actually going to get to that next week. If you'd like to skip ahead, in verse 18, it begins to unpack the gospel. But just in case that just bugs you to all get out, I'll, I'll give you a little sneak peek. Essentially, the common reality that Paul is after, that sets up the foundation for love and unity, it's that there are a group of people who were all once dead. And now in the light of who Jesus is and what he's done, are alive. We're all rescue victims. That's the great unifying reality. Apart from God, we were all once dead in our sins, by nature, children of wrath. But God, because of his great love for us, for his lost, broken, often slightly annoying children. If you got kids, you feel me? I love them to death, but man, you thought marriage was hard. Because of God's great love for us, he went on a rescue mission. He entered into creation 
suffered and died on the cross, taking our sin upon himself, thus conquering death, coming back to life and offering new life to everyone who would turn from their old ways, simply trying to figure it out on their own, trying to be good people and just get along, to trusting in Jesus and his great work for us on the cross. And we experience new life. That's the common reality. We were all once dead, but now because of Jesus, we have been given new life. It's what Paul refers to as the word of the cross. Next week, we're going to talk about the utter folly of the cross. What a ridiculous reality from our perspective, perhaps. Have you, uh, are you familiar with the, um, the four Ds of agreement? Have you heard of the die, divide, debate, decide? I'm guessing that many of you have, maybe a couple of times. If you've not, it's actually really worth um, quickly going through. And we're talking about what are we to agree upon? There's the core, the essential, the non-negotiable, that Paul will get to, which he refers to as the gospel, or the word of the cross, but then there's some other things that as followers of Jesus, we need to think through a little bit. So I wanna walk you guys quickly through this. Bear with me if you've heard this before. Die, divide, debate, decide. You know, oftentimes, in, uh, in organizations and communities, uh, gosh, in families and in churches, we tend to fight over all sorts of things and even go our separate ways. We, we act like the Corinthians, forming factions and dividing up among ourselves according to particular pet teachings that really don't need to actually divide us. We end up fighting, debating, sometimes even dividing over things that really are up to you to simply decide. Certain things are worth dying for. The Apostle Paul, who's writing the letter, he died for his faith. We know that historically. People still today in certain parts of the world are dying because of their belief in Jesus. Martyrs, it's real. I think it's something that we should probably talk a little bit more about because it, it's, a, it's a profound reality and it's very humbling, it's challenging. Have you ever wondered to yourself, if you're a Christian here, have you ever wondered to yourself, would you, would you be willing to die if some, like in, in another parallel reality, you found yourself in, in some Middle Eastern country where a gun was put to your head and you were told to denounce your faith in Jesus or die, would you have the courage to take the bullet and give up your life as one of many, many, many martyrs in the family of God? What is worth dying for in terms of your faith in Jesus? It's a great question to ask. What about, what about divide? What, what is a legitimate dividing 
issue within the family of God? Money. Like, I want some of yours. How to spend it. That actually, that's not a bad, that's not a bad example. Um, oftentimes when leaders or pastors will talk about giving to the church, have you ever heard of the expression uh, tithe? Mm-hmm. Some very, very controversial teachings surrounding the issue of tithing. Uh, as followers of Jesus, living under the, the confines of a new covenant, not the law, but the new way of the spirit, as it's put in the book of Romans, am I obligated by law, by biblical law, to give 10% of my income to the church? That could be a divide for. Personally, I would say not quite. Not quite. Debate for sure. We could have a rigorous debate about that. I'll give you an example of what I think would be a great divide for issue. Um, there's, there's a handful of cults in Portland, uh, Christian cults, groups that would call themselves churches, that would worship Jesus, um, that would even profess that we were only saved through faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. But in order to be saved, you must be baptized as a sort of prerequisite to salvation. Uh, that's heresy. That's, that, is, that is crossing the line over into legalism. Okay? Baptism is absolutely something that's commanded by Jesus as an act of obedience. So we're not, it's not simply up to me to decide whether or not I'm into it or not. But obedience is always uh, a fruit of salvation. When the Holy Spirit... God the Spirit has taken up residence in your heart. Something happens that theologians refer to as regeneration. The very desires in your heart begin to undergo renovation. You begin to lose certain desires. Old desires are diminished in the light of new, greater, surpassing desires to honor God and to obey King Jesus. As a Christian, typically your first act of obedience should be to be baptized because this is what Jesus commanded us to do. Never as a prerequisite to salvation. Salvation is a gift. It's something that we experience by grace through faith. Obedience follows. That would be a divide for issue. I would say, look, <laughs> you might be a Christian, I'll give you that for sure, but, uh, but you're teaching very, very dangerous heresy. And that's, gonna, that's, gonna, that's a major, major problem. That's a divide for issue. What about debate? I would say the tithe issue. Just in case you're wondering where I stand, I, I taught on this uh, probably a couple of months ago in our Torn Veil series. I talked about the cross and money. I tithe personally. It's a, it's a conviction that I have, my wife and, and I have. The reason why is not because we are under the law and we're simply trying to apply some sort of ancient law to our lives. Um, it's because our hearts have been full of love and that really works out into generosity. 
And so uh, it's our great honor and privilege to, to give back a fraction of what God has entrusted to us in way of, of financial resources. And so we tithe. We actually, we, we give 10% of our income um, to our church here. And then we even, we, we give offerings as well on top of that. Um, I would never, ever, ever try to convince anyone to do that because of some cer- certain verses in the Old Testament. I might appeal to certain verses in the Old Testament, like Malachi and Deuteronomy, as a, as a means of extracting practical wisdom from the scriptures, as a means of establishing a helpful precedent in terms of a starting point as to what generosity might actually look like instead of simply just, I don't know, going based on how I happen to feel any given week or month. That really seems to work out too great when I'm just kind of going by my feelings. But whatever I do as obedience is always the outworking of God's love being poured into my heart. I have been set free to now serve in the new way of the Spirit. And that is a heart undergoing transformation as God's grace works itself out in my life. We could debate that. I would debate you. We could have a public debate over tithing. What about, um, what, what else would be a good debate for issue? Hmm? The, the deity of Jesus? No, that's a die for. That's a die for. Yeah. Loving your enemies? Hmm. Debate? Divide. Yeah. Non optional. How about this one? So I, I went to seminary in London and studied theology in the Anglican communion. Anglicans baptize infants. We could debate that one. Most of us Protestants are like, what? No, that's weird, heresy. It's not heresy. Um, I have certain convictions as to why I don't believe in baptizing infants. We dedicate infants for sure. We pray for them and, and dedicate them to Jesus and commit to, uh, to raising them together as a community um, to follow Jesus and to experience his love. Um, but Anglicans, they, they sprinkle the kids. It's fine. It's fine. They have, they have biblical reasons for why they, they, they view baptism that way. And that's great. Understandable reasons. Debatable, but reasonable. And what about decide? Gosh, there's a million things that are simply left up to you to decide upon. Um, some of you believe that you should, uh, you know, if you're a woman, you should cover your head at church in worship and in prayer. Cool, I, I, I know exactly where you would get that from. Yeah, Paul, in fact, we're reading Paul. He's the one that says women should, should cover their heads in, in a worship setting. You wanna do that, it's totally fine. That's up to you to decide. That's, that's your interpretation of a, a potentially complex portion of scripture um, and we'll get there actually it's in 1 Corinthians should be fun 
Um, what about spiritual gifts? Raise your hand if you pray in tongues. No, don't raise your hand. <laughs> we'll get there as well. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. That'll be fun. If you don't pray in tongues, it's fine. That's, that is for you to decide upon. If you do, you can totally do that. If you decide to start belting out in tongues right here and now, we'll, just, we'll have a great debate about that. <laughs> and I, I will win. I guarantee you. There's a lot as Christians we can decide upon. Guys, agreement, agreement, it's important. Let's go there. What are we to agree? Is this helpful at all? Die, divide, debate, decide. Guys, we would do ourselves a massive favor if we could just, if we could really distinguish more between these two. And in a minute, I'm going to talk about like, like how. How do we do that? And why do we so often end up just defaulting to divide over issues that really we would, be, we would do very well to debate and learn from? But let's, let's go to this next question. Why is this so important? Why is it so crucial that this would be the first thing that Paul addresses in his letter to the Christians in Corinth. Why is it so important? Well, we just read in John 17. He says, so, that the world might know, what? Two things. That Jesus was sent from God, that he is, in fact, who he claimed to be, who the eyewitnesses reported him to be, and that the world would know that God has loved us the same way that the Father loved the Son the people would know. Our unity would be evidence. It would be a sign that Jesus is real and his love is transformational. But if all we ever do is just fight and divide and bounce every time we feel insecure because you've called into question some conviction I have about something, what kind of sign is that? What kind of love is that? If the family of God can't even stay together. It's actually far less practical than spiritual. This is crucial because as the world looks on, all they know is brokenness. Broken homes, failed marriages, Christians constantly fighting and viciously blogging against each other. (laughs) Who wants that? Who even cares? It's important because it's, it's evidence that Jesus is real and his love changes everything. Um, I have to share this before I forget. I was so encouraged. It's about two months ago. It was during our Torn Bell series. You might remember me uh, give a message entitled The Cross and Romance. Anyone remember that one? Uh, I had one of the guys in here. We had a meeting the following week, and we sat down. We were talking about a, a few things, and he told me in no uncertain terms, good sermon, some great stuff, totally disagreed with some of your points. Um, and so naturally, I threatened to excommunicate him. <laughs> we sorted it out. I was greatly encouraged 
Guys, that's, that is healthy. That is so healthy. Now, when I'm reading scripture, that's one thing. I'm not like submitting it to you for your like, you know, what do you think? You know, it's like, no, this, this is simply God's word. I'm not putting it out there for us, uh, you know, to debate, debate about per se. Now, our interpretation of it, like what we have to say in thinking after God's thoughts, in reflecting upon truth. There's a lot to debate. There's a whole lot that can be said on either side of many diverse spectrums. And I was so encouraged that this brother had the courage and the maturity to simply look me in the face and say, look, a great sermon, some good stuff, but totally disagreed on this and this point. It shows a lot of maturity, and it's encouraging to me as a pastor that there's something healthy about the community that we're building here that someone would actually be feel. And here's the cool thing. It wasn't like, well, I didn't agree, and therefore, I'm, I'm not going to be coming back. No, we had a great conversation about it. We listened to each other. It's happened more than once. It's always super humbling. I hate it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, like, what do you mean you disagree with me? I'm the pastor. <laughs> My thoughts are infallible. No, no. It's healthy. It's good. It's important. How do we pull it off? Guys, I want to get really, really simple. Can we go to the next slide, please? Two things. Be secure and die to self. Not easy. I didn't say easy, but profoundly simple. Be secure, die to self, and don't just die, but die to self that you might live for God and others. It's important. Be secure. You know what we so often default to divide when we should simply be debating or perhaps even deciding? Because we're so dang insecure. This is why we've had to resort to tolerance as opposed to learning to actually disagree but yet love each other. What does it take to be in strong disagreement about something that you you feel quite passionate about and yet it's not going to cause us to actually like break fellowship, draw a dividing line, somehow divide up the family of God? It takes being able to, to know where you stand and that no matter what you believe, or what you might say about how I'm wrong, it doesn't change who I am in Christ. I don't have to dig my heels in. I don't have to get defensive. I don't have to become argumentative. I don't need to raise my voice. I don't need to somehow convince you that I'm smarter than you because I have bigger books on my bookshelf. Guys, if we can be secure, if we can grow as children of God, knowing that our Heavenly Father wholly and unconditionally loves us and accepts us because of who He is and what He's done through Jesus on the cross, guys, 
we can disagree, we can debate, we can even have some good old-fashioned fights. And it can be, I'm not talking about like fist fights. <laughs> that would be interesting. I reckon there was a, a one or two brawls in the, the Corinthian church. Wouldn't put it past them. We can argue and be secure that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are a Christian. And we can have healthy, beneficial debates because we can listen to each other without feeling in our gut that I have to be defensive. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what went wrong that we, we, but we stopped being able to simply disagree and still respect and listen well to each other and learn from each other in the process. But this is what Paul is talking about. Agreement, he's not talking about uniformity. He's not talking about somehow we're all just melded into this one blob of something that we all have like, you know, we're like the, the Borg. Any Trekkie fans in here? Resistance is futile. Okay, we're not talking about Borg theology. Does that make any sense to anyone? Okay, thank you. Just research it, Borg. Not talking about that. We're talking about diversity and unity. Trinitarian community where we know what's core, we, we know what's non-negotiable, we know what we'll die for, and we know what is simply to decide or debate and to be secure about and learn from each other as we engage and, 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 and process through these things. Always be open to being wrong. Be open to being wrong. Many, many people We've only been around, we're like a one-year-old church, less than one-year-old church. I've seen people leave here, and I can see it happen. I'll say something, you don't, I, can, I, can, I can tell you don't like it because of the expression on your face, and the number of times I've seen that person disappear. It's like, oh, there it went. You know, it's only a matter of time for someone up here, whether it's me, someone here, or someone is going to say something that you really, really don't like and don't agree with. Will that be your cue to draw the line and divide? God, I hope not. Could be that you need to walk right up to me and be like, hey, brother, pastor, mm -mm. respectfully, what you said, that, that was not right. It was offensive um, and wrong. And hopefully I'll have the humility to repent and the body will be built up in love. It takes being secure. And that's a miracle from Jesus. Finally, die to self. You know, we all come in uh, to the family of God as like infants, right? Diapers, nappies, um, can't feed ourselves, weak, like we would die if someone didn't come along and, and really help us out. And this is how we come in. And so in a way, the church is like a, like a daycare. That's really not what's happening downstairs. 
And, and we come here because we need help. We need someone to help us. We need Jesus, and we need Jesus in people. That's great, that's wonderful. But eventually, like, we, we grow, we mature, and we realize that I'm not merely here to get, to receive, but to also give and to contribute. This is what Jesus refers to as losing your life that you might gain life. We need it. We need it as, as individuals in order to grow and to mature as children of God. We need to learn and be taught how to become contributors. How to begin to lose our own agenda and show up and say, okay, gosh, I'm beginning to get it. I'm not just here to see what I can get personally out of this. God's given me a lot to share. How can I contribute today? And we begin to die to self. We begin to let go of our personal agenda and look for ways to contribute and to give and to get involved in what God is doing. It's okay if you've come here today like looking to fulfill like your own personal agenda. It's totally okay. We love you. We'd love to introduce you to Jesus. I have to warn you though, what's gonna happen if you stick around long enough to begin to feel this very uncomfortable, not pressure, oh, yeah, pressure. <laughs> love from God to begin to grow and to love the way he does. We start out as infants, we grow up to like children, we can walk, we don't need someone changing our nappies, eventually we enter into adolescence, and we grow to become like spiritual mothers and fathers. Still have needs, still need to be constantly receiving, 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 that's, that's our, our posture, we never get too big to receive love from our father and each other, we're always kids in that sense but we mature so that we can begin to, to also contribute and give to our brothers and sisters. That's called dying to self, that we might live for God and others.